0: You know, as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, I think the first thing that we're struck by, and sorry guys, I I forgot to print out a handout, Um, but I think the first thing that we're struck by is the Scripture's indirect testimony to the Holy Spirit. Um, In comparison to the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit receives a uh, relative lack of attention. Have you guys noticed that, reading Scripture? Right? That the Father and the Son, at least in comparison to the Holy Spirit, there's a lot more um, wealth of information, at least if you just take the Gospels, right? It's just so much about Christ and his relationship to the Father. And um, the Holy Spirit is throughout, but hints of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. Um, Take the Gospel of Luke, which we've been studying. He shows up in the beginning, the Incarnation. He'll show up... um, when Jesus talks about the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, um, and then a few passages where he's mentioned, but nothing, right? No sustained treatment. So you guys get the point I'm trying to make. Um, Joseph Ratzinger, he he says, uh, There's a certain difficulty in speaking about the Holy Spirit. Even a certain danger, he withdraws from us into the mystery even more than Christ it is quite possible that this topic has sparked only idle speculation and that human life is being based upon self-made fantasies rather than reality. So he's getting at the, the implicit danger when we talk about the Holy Spirit because there is less information, there is more of a danger um, of just saying things that are just not true. And again, I think, as I said, this is something that we... Grasp intuitively that um, in comparison, I guess I don't have a handout today, so just we're rocking and rolling. So what we're talking about just now was that um, that in relation to the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit receives um, less attention. Uh, the The Christ is a direct object of observation, and the Father through His relation, and then the Holy Spirit um, coming in, uh, in in that other place. So, again, I think this is something that we grasp intuitively, um, and that even in my pastoral experience, people asking questions about God, it's typically the Holy Spirit who people have the most questions about. It's probably the divinity of Christ, and then it's to, what about the Spirit? Um, because, I think, in comparison to the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit seems rather mysterious, um, obscure even. And it poses the question, why? Why does the Holy Spirit have this unique manifestation in the Scriptures? Uh, now, you could answer that, and some have, and said, because the Holy Spirit is on a, on a, on a secondary level to Jesus and the Father, and you know, on and on. Um, but I think the answer is taken from the Holy Spirit's mission in salvation history. The reason that the Spirit is spoken of indirectly, you might say, is because of what he does in um, and in and for us. So summing up the Holy Spirit's ministry, Jesus says, John 16:14, he will glorify me. He will glorify me. And the Apostle Peter, speaking of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Covenant, uh, says much the same thing. He says that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Hi, Margaret. How are you? I don't have a handout today, um, and so we're talking about the, the Holy Spirit and at least initially right now, how he's revealed um, or how the testimony to him is a little bit more indirect than the Father and the Son. So, um, as we just said in those two passages, the passage in John and the passage in 1 Peter, um, the Spirit's mission is to testify about another, to testify about the Son. Or, to put it another way, The Holy Spirit is not another word from the Father alongside the Son, but the illumination and the instruction of the Son. He's not another word, but he's come to help us understand the word that has been spoken. So T.F. Torrance, uh, he sums up the Holy Spirit's mission beautifully. He says, The Holy Spirit has no face, but it is through the Spirit that we see the face of Christ." And in the face of Christ, we see the face of the Father. The Holy Spirit does not manifest himself or focus attention upon himself, for it is his mission from the Father to declare the Son and focus attention upon him. So, understood figuratively, right? The Spirit has no face, but is the one through whom and in whom we see the face of the Son, and thus the face of the Father through him. Does that make sense? Right. He's come to show us the face of Christ, and in the face of Christ, the face of the Father. And that passage from T.F. Torrance, I think, is deeply reminiscent of John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, Say, "...he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said..." he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit, working with Jesus' analogy, will take from the common possession of the Father and the Son and disclose it, impart it to us. So he doesn't take from his own storehouse, Jesus says, but he takes from the Father's and the Son's mutual storehouse um, and discloses and shares its contents with us, right? So he's going to take what's mine, and then Jesus says, what I have is I share with the Father. His is mine, mine is his. So he's going to take what is the Father's and the Son's, he's going to share it with us. So naturally, the attention is deflected away from the revealer toward those whom he reveals, the Father and the Son. Does that make sense? And I think that's a little bit why the Holy Spirit is revealed in this indirect sense. Vladimir Lasky, uh, an Orthodox theologian, he says something similar. His person is hidden from us by the very profusion of the divinity which he manifests. So in revealing the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, his divinity is hidden from us. I, I was trying to think of an analogy, and I guess the only thing I could think of was, you know, let's say you're looking at something out on the horizon. It's away from you. Um, there's a, a, a distance, an objectivity about it. That's maybe what we're seeing in the sun. He comes among us. And then, in regard to the Holy Spirit, um, trying to discern His divinity is like trying to discern how one sees, their own eyesight, their own sense of perception, it becomes immediately more subjective. And so Karl Barth, a theologian we've relied upon a lot, he talks about how Christ is the objective element in Revelation. It's concrete, it's definitive, it's before our eyes, and then the Holy Spirit as the subjective element of Revelation, meaning he's the one who helps us to discern what's before us. So maybe that's a way just to kind of get an idea of why the Holy Spirit is hard to um, understand. So, thus, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work in salvation history, being the illuminator rather than the thing illumined, his personhood is necessarily obscured. And to be sure, um, there is much that the Scripture says regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation history. He sanctifies. He witnesses. He empowers. Um, He—he's he, the—the—the the, the lifeblood of the church, so on and so forth. But in regards to the Spirit's place within the Trinity, his essential identity, not much, if anything, is said. Right. It's harder to get behind the works to his identity within the Trinity in eternity. I think. Um, Robert Lewis Wilkin, I think he puts it well. He says, although there are many references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, they offer no clear and unequivocal testimony to the Spirit's nature and character. The works are many, but it's not easy to discern what, if anything, is unique to them. Hey guys, I got no paper, so I'm just going to have to roll with us. Um, so the Holy Spirit, I guess here's the point where I'm trying to make. The Holy Spirit being revealed indirectly can only be approached indirectly. Um, and so before we proceed, I just want to make sure that that makes sense. On the, are we on the same page, kind of about the Spirit? Does that seem right? Approached indirectly in, in the sense of approached through Christ, approached through, he, he's not revealed as the direct object of experience like Christ is. And so the way that we come to know, at least theologically, about the nature of who Christ is, is different than the way we do it in relation to the Son, or in relation to the Spirit, rather. Um, and that's kind of why we spent two weeks talking about the Son and then the Son's relation to the Father to now come to the Spirit because there's less material to work with, and so we kind of need to pull from different areas. Does that make sense? So he's revealed in a different way, therefore we have to approach him in a different way. So, um, like I was just saying, our understanding of the Spirit's personal identity is dependent upon um, a prior scriptural discovery about the Son's personal identity. So, And and we'll, we'll see this, I'll explain in a minute. So... Well, let's just get to it. The church's development and articulation of the divine persons reflects this. If you look at church history, the son's identity was debated and settled upon first, and then a consensus regarding the Holy Spirit um, emerged afterward. So Gregory of Nazianzus, a person, a theologian we've relied heavily upon, he defends this order of discovery and grounds it in God's providential plan. So, listen to what he says. The Old Covenant made clear proclamation of the Father, a less definite one of the Son. Right? That makes sense. We're being, in the Old Testament, God is being revealed to us. Um, But we don't necessarily have a concept of God's Son, right? Um, And he says, the New Covenant made the Son manifest and gave us a glimpse of the Spirit's Godhead. At the present time, the Spirit resides amongst us, giving us a clearer manifestation of Himself than before. It was dangerous for the Spirit to be made, and here I use a rather rash expression, an extra burden, when the Son had not been received. It could mean men jeopardizing what did lie within their powers, as happens to those who gaze at sunlight with with eyes as yet too feeble for it. No, no. God meant it to be by piecemeal additions, a sense, as David called them, by progressing and uh, by progress and advance from glory to glory, that the light of the Trinity should shine upon more illustrious souls. So on God and Christ, in this book uh, of, of uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, he's defending um, really what we're talking about here, that the Holy Spirit, We came to his identity after previous building, right? Previous construction. Um, So, according to what Gregory is saying, a clear articulation of the Holy Spirit, um, his personhood and his divinity, could not come before the Son. He says that our knowledge of the Trinity comes by piecemeal additions. So there's a particular order to Revelation, or at least to our um, growth in Revelation, and it comes... Little by little. First, the Father, you could say in the Old Covenant. Now, that's a generalization, but it works for the point that Gregory's trying to make. Then the Son in the New Covenant, and then the Spirit um, after we've already developed them. Yes, Lord. Sure. Yes, yes. Right, yeah, amongst us rather than in us, yeah. No, I agree, that is rather misleading. But um, I think if you look at, uh, so there's the three Cappadocian fathers, the two Gregories and then Basil. Um, they were the theologians who who really, there was a controversy about the Holy Spirit, and they were the ones in God in Christ, Basil on the Holy Spirit, and then I can't forget the other Gregory's writing. I can't remember his writings, but they were the ones to really defend the Trinity and or, or defend the Holy Spirit and articulate a clearer understanding of Him. So they actually were um, really um, uh, robust in their uh, theology on the on the Holy Spirit. So, um, so yeah, what he's saying is that. Uh, um, that our understanding of the Son is based upon a prior understanding of the Father, and that our understanding of the Holy Spirit is based on a prior understanding of the Son. So there's a, there's a, a building that takes place. He continues, um, The Savior had certain truths which he said could not at this time be borne by his disciples, filled though they had been with a host of teachings. One of these truths I take to be the Godhead of the Spirit, which becomes clear at a later stage when the knowledge is timely and capable of being taken in. So he's saying the truth of the Holy Spirit's personhood and divinity comes at a later stage, and that later stage comes after the church's complete articulation of the Son's identity. Um, the, so the uh, conceptual tools and the Trinitarian patterns made known to us um, in our discovery of the Son's identity also apply to the Holy Spirit. Um, and so you see, again, that what we're trying to say here, that we're we're going to move from the Son over to the Holy Spirit and take some of the things we've learned about who the Son is, about these things within the Godhead, and then take them and apply them to the Spirit to try and get a better uh, understanding of His identity. So that'll become a little bit more clear as we move on. Any questions about that? Okay, fairly straightforward. So, that leads us to um, now to the Holy Spirit himself, and we're going to consider his name. Um, and that really is the place for us to begin. Um, yeah, so let's identify three things about the name of the Holy Spirit. The first is that the name Holy Spirit is not distinct. Okay, the name Father cannot be applied to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. The name Son cannot be applied to the Father or the Holy Spirit. But the name Holy Spirit is a little bit different because to be both holy and spirit is common to all the divine persons. Father is holy, Son is holy, the Holy Spirit is holy. Um, And then we know, John chapter 4, God is spirit. God's not corporal. he doesn't possess a body. He's not uh, flesh and blood, except the Son in the incarnation. So, when we come to the name Holy Spirit, um, what we're saying is that it's it's not distinct. There, there's not something there that immediately gives us a hint. It actually, it actually causes a little bit more confusion because the Father's holy and Spirit, the Son is holy and Spirit, and so is necessarily the Holy Spirit. So there's one problem, right? Something that at least is pushing us in the right direction. The second one is that the Holy Spirit is not a relational name. The very name Father implies the Son and vice versa. There's a relation inherent in those names. There is a a sense in which we can at least use those names to peer a little bit deeper into what's going on. But the Holy Spirit, it's not a relational name. At least if we take Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit kind of seems without being, um, for, for, without having a, a due reverence, it seems the oddball out, right? Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit, the third will, whatever. Um, so the Holy Spirit isn't a relational name. So there's another problem that we need to, to deal with. And then third is that the Holy Spirit isn't necessarily a personal name. And this has led to some confusion throughout the ages. Um, again, opposed to Father and Son, the Holy Spirit is not obviously about somebody rather than something. People have tried to refer to the Spirit as a power, the Spirit as a, um, a, a force, this impersonal thing. I don't know all the phrases that you could multiply, so, you, you see then, in getting to the Holy Spirit, trying to identify his identity, um, we run into some issues. There are certain ambiguities and mysteries about the name Holy Spirit that we must navigate around. So, unlike the name Father and the name Son, it's not all that obvious what Holy Spirit means. However, that said we can begin by comparing the name Holy Spirit to the name's Father and Son. So, I'm debating if we should. Well, we won't. I would say a thought experiment, but we'll confuse ourselves more. Um, So, as we established last week and the week before that, the Son receives His name in relation to the Father. The son merits the name son because he has been, or rather not has been, but he is eternally begotten from the father. So in the names father, son, we're told something about who they are. The son is named son because he is a son. The Father is the name father because he is a father. He eternally begets. The son is eternally begotten. So it is illuminating Therefore, to consider that the Holy Spirit is not a second son, right? Um, Nor is is he ever um, uh, a father. So he's never identified uh, a son of the father, right? You find this only one place in all of Christian literature that's not like heretical, and it's from one of the desert monks, um, Hermes, or I forget his name, but he calls the Spirit a son of the father, Right? That's like the only time in any important work that that happens. Um, and clearly in the Bible, he's never called another son. And also, it's interesting and instructive to note that he's not called a brother to the son, right? And so what do you think that tells us? If the Holy Spirit is not a son, and if he's not a brother, then what do you think, does that, does that communicate anything in your mind about what it means for him to be who he is? He's an uncle, right? (laughs) Yeah, any thoughts about what it means? So I think at least what we can say initially, maybe not an uncle, but (laughs) definitively, definitively, he's not a son. And so if he's not a son, what does that mean? It means that he's not begotten from the Father. Because what does that name son mean? It means that he's begotten, right? The Son is in every way like the Father except for one thing, that he is the Son. He's begotten from the Father. Mike. That he's only begotten? Know, begotten not a, not a uh, well, that's what the name, that's what, Monogenes means is only begotten or unique. Is that? Oh, so you're saying it kind of has a similar fam- familial relation, mm-hmm. he, comes from the he comes from the father. Okay, well, you're on to one, so we'll, we'll, we'll hang on to that. I have a question, Three years. Yeah. Okay. Was that an attempt to define him as the ghost, if you will? Yeah. Of Jesus Christ. I think it was. uh, I mean, the. How did we get from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit? That that's a development, not so much in the biblical language as it much as much as it is within English language. So now, ghost has the connotations of. I don't know, A Haunted House and Casper and Spooky, whatever. Back then, ghost and spirit were synonymous, right? And now they've moved apart. Um, so whether we read ghost or spirit, um, we should be thinking the same thing. that makes sense? Well, we'll get into it, right? We'll, we'll get into talking about how he relates to the Father and the Son. So so Mike I, was on to something. Now, the Scripture doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit as on, with the name monogenes. That's always only related to the Son. But Mike was talking about um, how he said the Spirit is uh, also from the Father. And I think that's where we're starting to be led when we consider the name Holy Spirit. The Son is from the Father, um, but the Holy Spirit, uh, or the, the Son, let me back up. Let me just read what is in my notes before I confuse everybody. So um, let's not miss the importance of this. If the Holy Spirit is not another Son, whatever His personal name means, it indicates something different than begottenness. So the Father's personal property is un, is to be unbegotten. The Son's personal property is to be begotten. And therefore, the Holy Spirit's personal property is must be something different. It's a third thing. He must stand in a different relation of origin than the Father and the Son. Or, to phrase it differently, if the Son relates to the Father by virtue of his Sonship, then the Holy Spirit must necessarily relate to the Father by virtue of something else. The Son's begotten. The Holy Spirit, we're going to say, is from the Father, but he's from the Father in a different way. Otherwise, we would just call him another son, but he's not. So there's, some, there's a third thing now that we're trying to pinpoint and identify. Now the question is, well, what is it? The church um, has come to identify the personal property of the Holy Spirit. Um, Mike said he's from the Father, so he's from this as procession. Now that terminology comes from John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. It says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So, a little bit of context. Jesus speaks these words in the context of his impending departure and the subsequent persecution that the disciples are going to face. So, a little further on, he'll say in chapter 16, Um, I am going to him who sent me, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And then just before that, he told his disciples in verse 2 of chapter 16, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. So he says, I'm going to leave you, and you're going to be killed. So it's in this volatile context that Jesus introduces the one whom he calls the Helper or in Greek, the paraclete, the one, the name that we're very familiar with. And this helper comes to do two things. One, to testify about Jesus, and two, to enable the disciples to testify about Jesus. Now, certainly there's more things, but we're confining ourselves to this passage. So allow me to read it again. When the helper comes, he will testify about me, and you will testify also. So the idea is that as jesus departs the helper will come that the testimony about jesus will continue even in the face of opposition now that said for us the issue are the two phrases jesus inserts in the middle of john 15:26 he says speaking of the spirit whom i will send to you from the father that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father so we have two phrases there Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So it might seem initially that the two phrases are parallel in meaning. Sending and proceeding are the same thing, being referred to by by two different verbs. Um, And certainly that's plausible. However, I think the, the, the important factor is the tenses of those words in the Greek. And they indicate... That sending and proceeding are, in fact, not the same thing. So clearly, um, it's even clearer in our English verse, Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit is future tense. Whom I will send. But the second phrase, who proceeds from the Father, is in the present tense, indicating an ongoing action. So I will send him, but... Right, so therefore, it seems that um, to... Go ahead. Sure. So he's coming to testify to us about Jesus. Yes. What was the purpose then when Jesus was baptized and he was filled with the Spirit? He was filled with the Spirit. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting uh, uh, ways to explain that, and I'm trying to scan my brain for, for I think, the, the proper one. Um, what was the purpose of the Spirit descending upon him? Well, it, it doesn't say that he was filled with the Spirit. You know, it, it, no, so in the baptism story, it says that the Spirit, I'm trying to think of the right term, lighted upon him, the Spirit descended upon him. Um, but it doesn't say specifically that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Um, and the, the, the spirit, his arrival upon Jesus or his descending upon Jesus coincides with the word spoken by the father. Um, and so what's going on there, I, I, I think we, we, is not a feeling of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. I think, I think we'd have to say that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit from the beginning, um but that whatever the Spirit's role in that passage. So go to the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and then um, Jesus is sent into the wilderness. He comes back from the wilderness, and then he starts preaching in, um, I think it's in Galilee, or in the region of Galilee. And then he quotes from the passage in, uh, in Isaiah 63 or 66, or 63 I think, and he says that um, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, so on and so forth. So I think the way we should understand the Spirit descending upon Christ at at his baptism is not so much a feeling of the Spirit as as much as it is the inauguration, the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. So you might think of it in the sense as the Spirit descending upon the man Jesus and preparing him for, and really equipping him, anointing him for the work of the ministry. Does that make sense, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And in, the in, in in the Father's voice comes in conjunction with the spirit. Yeah, the the, the baptism stories um I think I think it really is immensely deep and there's a lot to say there. But yeah, definitely a good question. Well, Laura? also, I mean, this is in a public place. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of people around. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say that the voice only came to do the assumed that other people could hear Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I, th- I agree with that because I think even in that passage in Luke, it's followed by, or it's preceded by a genealogy, and that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, right? Trying to indicate that when Christ is anointed here, it's it's you know anyway, it's Luke's making a very profound point and to the crowd there as well. So yeah, um, so so yeah, so the Spirit comes and 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 uh, he comes that to testify about Jesus, um, but for, for, like we said, for our purposes, there, it's those phrases that Jesus uses in the middle. Um, I'm going to send him, he's going to come from the Father, and then he adds this other phrase, he proceeds from the Father. And so based on those two tenses, we're saying those are two different things. At least it seems that way, right, if we're, try- we're going to be modest. Um, so the Holy Spirit sending is something that has yet to happen, and his proceeding from the Father in the present tense is something that we would say happens eternally. So the question then becomes, what distinguishes the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Spirit proceeding from the Father? Now, historically, um, the church has identified sending as referring to the Holy Spirit's mission in salvation history. That's not uh, uh, in, in any way controversial. And proceeding. He proceeds from the Father as referring to the Holy Spirit's relation within the divine life. So, let's jump out of this and go straight to Karl Barr. He says, No creature can be said to have proceeded from God, i.e. to be an emanation of the divine essence. The creation of the world and man is not a procession or emanation from God. I think the wording is really important. It is the establishing of a reality distinct from God, with an essence of its own and not the divine essence. What proceeds from God can only be God once again. So, again, you can never say in any sense of the term that creation proceeds from God. Maybe, maybe in a very highly qualified sense, but typically, proceeding, emanating, um, it, it refers to something much different than creating, a reality distinct from God. Whereas, emanating, what Bart is saying here, proceeding, is a reality within God. So the question becomes is, well, what is procession? And again, we have to be modest to say not too much. However, we said there were some problems with the name Holy Spirit, at least for us in identifying him. That was a little bit of an overstatement. The name Spirit does provide us with a suggestive suggestive notion. You guys know this, we've talked about it. In both Hebrew and Greek, the most basic sense of the word Spirit is breath, or wind, or something along those lines. Thus, without being too anthropomorphic, I think we're given a subtle hint about the Spirit's procession from the Father. Whereas the Son is the word spoken by the Father, the Holy Spirit is the breath breathed from the Father. Now, I think there's something to that, and I want to take you guys on a little bit of a detour to see how the Scriptures talk about Spirit. I think it's reinforced in considering man's creation and then his recreation. So on the first pages of scripture, the creation of man is described. It says, Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God formed man and then breathed into man the breath of life. Now keep in mind, The words breath and spirit are the same word in Hebrew, ruach. They're not different words. So I think there's good reason for reading the breath that God breathed into man as the spirit. Now, but in a highly qualified sense. I think in the sense that um, Psalm 104 speaks about the spirit. This is Psalm 104 verses 29 and 30. It says, you hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit. If you have an older translation, that'll literally read breath. You take away their breath, they expire and return to dust. So there's the Genesis 2, but exactly backwards. Father, or the, God forms man, then breathes into him. Here, he takes away his breath, man goes back to dust, right? Um, and then it says, you send forth your spirit or breath, they are created, you renew the face of the ground. So I think based on the association with these two passages, that we ought to view the breath that God is breathing into man as the Holy Spirit. Um, Not in the sense in the New Covenant we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, but in the sense that the Spirit is the very principle of our life, right? He's what animates us. Um, So the Spirit of God, quite literally his breath, is the cause of creation. The Spirit is breathed out, and as a result, life is born. New things come to be it's deeply reminiscent of still another psalm, Psalm 33, this time verse 6. I mean, I can't believe this is in the Old Testament. It's so Trinitarian. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The Lord, his word, and his breath. The making of the cosmos is attributed to the Lord's word and to his breath. It's very suggestive, especially getting into the Trinity, getting into the Spirit's identity in the New Testament, and then going back to the Old Testament. I think the pattern, though, is brought to its culmination in, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. You guys know the passage, John 20, verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is departed, imparted to the disciples, spiritually regenerating them, through Jesus, breathing on them, through his breath. Now, of course, it's not the physical breath and so on and so forth. Uh, Most interpreters read that as a a symbol, nevertheless communicating something true about the Spirit. Um, So, it seems, to kind of draw this to a, a, a brief conclusion, that as word designates the Son's eternal begetting from the Father, so breath, designates the Spirit's eternal procession from the Father. If we just use that human metaphor, spirit the, the Son is from the Father as His Word, and the Spirit is from the Father as His breath. And these two things um, are not things, they're God Himself. So, um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's rather awesome and beautiful and exciting and... Um, I love it. But anyway, Gregory, whom we've already consulted, he posits procession as a third thing. So it's different than begetting and creating. Um, Remember, he's arguing with people who are denying the divinity of the Spirit. He says, in his typical um, bombastic way, explain to me where you're going to put procession, which is evidently a mean term between alternatives and was introduced by a better theologian than you, our Savior. I take it that you are not that you have not composed the New Testament, and on the strength of it removed the phrase the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father. Insofar as he proceeds from the Father, he is no creature. Inasmuch as he is begotten, he is no son. To the extent that procession is a mean between ingeneracy and generacy, he is God. So he says, He proceeds, it's not a creation, but he's not begotten, so he's not a son. So he's saying Procession is a third thing. What is it? Well, without prying into the divine mystery and declaring what procession is, Gregory says what it's not. Well, he's not created like creation. He's not begotten like the Son, but it's a third thing, something in the middle. Um, And I think that leads us to another question when we try to distinguish the Son from the Holy Spirit. And you'll find that around the third In fourth century, um, the fact that the Spirit wasn't an only begotten like the Son was actually a matter of great controversy. People and and so on and so forth. Um, So there was a a, a real effort to try and distinguish what procession is from what begetting is. Um, But really, the theologians just ended up saying they're different. We don't know why, Uh, and and they tried some attempts, and we'll get at them in a minute. Uh, but what they wanted to really say is that they're different. So Augustine, uh, if Gregory's the bombastic one, Augustine's the humble one, he says, Speaking of the superlatively excellent nature, who can explain the difference between begetting and proceeding? Not everything that proceeds is begotten, although everything that is begotten proceeds. Just as not every creature with two feet is a human, uh, though every human is biped. This much I know. But I do not know, nor do I have the skill to say what the difference is between begotten on the one hand and procession on the other. Again, right? It's just we don't know. We don't know. But there's another um, textual feature that I think commands our attention and that helps us to understand a little bit more about the Spirit's identity. And for lack of a better term, we're going to call this the Spirit's ofness. I use the phrase a whole lot, the 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 sons fromness. Now we're going to introduce another one, the spirits ofness. Um, for instance, think of this in the Old Testament. The spirit is named the Spirit of Elohim. He's the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of Adonai. These are all names to refer to God. Um, Elohim being the generic name for a spiritual being, God, Spirit of Yahweh, God's covenant name, spirit of Adonai. Uh, powerful, mighty? I don't know. I think that's what it means. And then he's the spirit of the most high. So he's the spirit of. Of again and again, that's the feature that comes up and you just you can't miss it. He's always, not always, but typically the spirit of. So um, Fred Sanders, he says, in the thicket of these Old Testament names, the most constant element sometimes seems to be the word of. In fact, there lies the real biblical root of the doctrine of procession. The fundamental pattern of the Spirit's self-naming is ofness. So, if we're trying to name the Holy Spirit, if we're looking for hints, we're searching for who He is. I think our attention necessarily comes to this ofness, right? So, this that persistent feature of the Scripture's testimony, the Spirit being the Spirit of, ought to factor into our understanding. And I think it reinforces the theological position that the Spirit proceeds or emanates from the Father. That's why he's constantly referred to as the Spirit of God. The Spirit of, think of the very first pages of the Bible. There's God, and then there's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. This ofness defines his character. But if we take the Spirit's ofness to be a reference to him proceeding from the Father, if 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 we establish that, then new light begins to uh, enter in, and and specifically in the spirit's relationship to the Son. Now in the New Testament, the scriptural pattern of naming the Spirit in relation to God is expanded to incorporate the Son as well. The Spirit is named the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. Think Romans eight. Think Galatians four. Think um, I. Th- Second Corinthians four; these different passages where he he the Spirit of God. Now he's also the Spirit of the Son, so on and so forth. Now, what do you guys think that's telling us? He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of the Son. <laughs> They're, all the They're all the same. That's certainly true. This pattern of ofness of the Father. We think that means that he proceeds from the Father. So if he's also the spirit of the son, I think we have the liberty to also say he's just as he proceeds from the father, he proceeds from the son. Does that make sense? He is the spirit of the father and therefore he's also the spirit of the son. He proceeds from both of them. Now, I'm not crazy. I'm not I'm not trying to like because that one, right, we have to we're more building to make a point and and Not too much changes if we believe that or not. I think there's good reason for believing it, but the reason I wanted to bring it up was because um, in the West, beginning in uh, the 9th century, that was inserted to one of the creeds, and in the East, they didn't like that, and that led to the Great Schism of uh, 1054, and it caused a giant split within the church. And still today the church is separated. There was a Protestant Reformation after that, so the Western church is divided twice, but the East and the West are divided over this very thing. The East said, only from the Father, the West said, from the Father and from the Son, and it erupted into this giant controversy, and the church is split over it um, still to this day. So, (laughs) for what's that worth, I just wanted you to know. Um, Now, here's where we come to what I'll just call our speculative part of this. Um, Historically, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that, can we say anything more? He's the Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the Son. He's from the Father, from the Son. Can we say anything more? Now, if we wanted to be really strict with our language, we would just leave it at that. If we wanted to be, go ahead, Right, right. So, so, like you said, we, we, we grasp his relationship to them, but not the reverse. And I think that's a, a good point, because then consider also what the Spirit does in our relation to the Son and the Father. He he brings us illumination and understanding. And, and I think when you, if you want to say, okay, how the Spirit acts in salvation history gives us a hint of who He is in, in eternity, in the Trinity, this sort of, the knowledge that He imparts to us, taking from the Father and the Son, is suggestive, and we'll come to this, about how He's between the Father and the Son, how His relationship is, is one of, well, we, we, we'll get to it, we, the, the name is gift, He's the gift of the Father. So, I, yeah, I think, that's, I think you're right on there. So, again, if we wanted to, like, just not, not get too ambitious, we would just stop there. Um, and, again, the West, or the East has, um, in Orthodox um, churches, uh, they're content to live with the mystery surrounding the personhood. Um, in their theology, there's a certain restraint and reverent silence about the Spirit's precise identity within the Godhead. And I think really it's a commendable move, because of all people, Protestants, who take our stand on the Word of God alone, we can sympathize with that, you know, not wanting to go too far. But I think what you see in the, West, in, in the Eastern theology is that because the spirit has a more mysterious identity, um, there's a lot of mysticism in the Eastern Church. I think those two are correlated. It's just a, a hunch, but there certainly is. Mike. right uh, I mean a case for a case for what for the Eastern view I mean I have a strong in in, in my developing understanding I have a strong um, sense of transcendence and, and 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 like you said like um, I think some of the things that we're going to begin to talk about the spirit from the father from the son we're building on scripture but I could certainly just see someone just saying, you know, and so, so I, uh, yeah, I agree. And that's why I don't tend to make too much of the from the Father and the Son or just from the Father alone. Um, but nevertheless, it, 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 it really divides churches to this day. Um, so, what I want to do now is expound upon two names that, that the church in its reading of Scripture has come to ascribe to the Holy Spirit. And those two names are gift and love. The Holy Spirit is gift and love. Um, and we're taking time to treat these names because, again, I think they're not without merit. I just kind of said that I'm like, you know, I, I have this skeptical side, but I really do think these, these do, they're suggestive at least. Um, and they strike me as intuitively right. So, again, I'm not teaching these names as uh, ineffaceable doctrines, but just really suggestive patterns as to the Spirit's eternal identity. So the first title that came to be applied to the church um, as a proper name is Gift. Now Augustine, um, again a theologian whom we've relied upon heavily, he was the first one to appropriate this name. But long before him, um, theological reflection began to move in this direction. Now very early on, the church's earliest treatments on the Holy Spirit were primarily defensive. They uh, They were concerned with combating heresy. So, if you look at the early literature around the identity of the Spirit, um, people like Origen, people like um, uh, Cyril, and anyway, so on and so forth, um, two questions feature. One, is there a Holy Spirit? And two, is the Holy Spirit a creature? So, some wondered, is the Holy Spirit just another way of referring to Christ? So, is he a distinct Person, being, whatever. And then the second question um, is he a creature? You know, could this spirit be a creation? So, in time, of course, those questions were answered um, uh, and settled, and it opened the door for more systematic reflection. So, we're moving past the defensive. So, now we're actually building. And at this point, Hilary of uh, Poitiers, a French theologian, a second century theologian, is crucial. Now, Hillary's contribution to the church's ever deepening understanding of the Spirit was to notice the distinct language that the Scripture uses in regard to the Spirit. So tell me if this rings true in your reading. He, the Spirit, is depicted as being um, given, he's predi- uh, depicted as being poured out on the one hand, and he's depicted as being received and indwelling on the other. So, Hillary, seeing these, of course, the Spirit, is, he's, he's given to us. We'll look at some scriptures in a minute. He's poured out, and then he indwells us. He's received by us. He, says that he sees this, and he says, the Spirit, and these are his words, is given, received, and possessed. Um, and so, he gives us some passages. So, Galatians' uh, gift, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father sent, meaning he is given. 1 Corinthians two twelve. Now we have received we uh, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Again, received, very clear. And then First Corinthians three sixteen. Do you know that you are? Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, that would be um, for him a reference to being possessed by us. Right, a spirit is. Um, Yeah, given and possessed by us. So, given these features of the way the Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit, Hilary goes on to name him the gift of the faithful. He is God's gift to us, the Holy Spirit is. Um, Again, gift being a shorthand way to refer to being given, to being received, and being possessed. So, with this in place from Hilary, the trajectory is set for Augustine's developments. And uh, Augustine really is just pointing out what's been there all along. Acts chapter eight, verses two, or Acts chapter two, verses th- verse thirty-eight. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, um, it's not simply that it's the gift that the Holy Spirit provides, but the gift itself is the Holy Spirit. And then you go to Acts chapter eight. Uh, Peter, responding to um, Simon, the magician's attempt to purchase the power to bestow the Holy Spirit, said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So Peter rebukes the would-be magician because he supposed that he could obtain the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, with money. And then when the gospel is shared and believed upon by the pagans, it's recounted, this way. All the circumcised, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And then when Peter recounts this event a little bit later to the Jews, he says, therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us um, also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You think of uh, John chapter 4, this language also comes up. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was speaking to you, he would give you living waters. Um, and then Acts chapter uh, 7, who are the living waters? It's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from me. So again, referring to the Spirit as a gift. So there's uh, more and more. But I just want you to see that feature, gift. It refers to him as a gift. Now here's what um, uh, Augustine asks the important question, was he gift before there was anyone to give him to? So in other words, we know he's the gift that's given to us, but is the Holy Spirit an eternal gift? Is, he, uh, is, he, is that who he is in eternity, right? Is he eternally gift? Now, it's a, a very important question to ask. Um, and again, it, it, there's a lot to it when you think of what's distinct about the Holy Spirit. Given received, possessed, gift. Now, does that constitute who he is in eternity? Well, let's hold on to that for a minute. Go to the next name, love. Sorry, guys, I'm moving quickly here because I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, John chapter four, first John chapter four, verses seven and eight. Um, So we'll build a fairly thorough exegesis of this passage. It says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So for our purposes, two phrases are of interest. First, love is from God, and then secondly, God is love. So one might interpret um, this to mean that that it is God's nature to be loving, and that all genuine love is from him, right? And that's certainly a legitimate reading. Augustine, however, interprets the passage in a more metaphysical sense. He reads the passage saying that the same love that is from God is God. So consider, God is love. And then just before that, he said, love is from God. So he reads that in a very metaphysical sense. If God is love and love is from God, then the love that is from God is God. Um, Now, which interpretation is the right one? I think maybe Augustine is pressing, um, but I do think that he's right to read that phrase God is love in a very literal metaphysical sense. So and regardless of which one you take, I don't think it depends on these further insights we're gonna draw. Now, first John uh, uh nine, four, nine through twelve a little later a little bit later on in the passage, he says, but this By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Here's the important verse. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, God is love. And his love was manifested in that he sent his only begotten Son that he might be the propitiation for our sins. And because God has so loved us, an obligation is laid on us. And what is that obligation? To love one another. And granted that we love one another, then the apostle says, God abides in us. So if we love one another, that is, his brothers and sisters in Christ, God abides in us. It makes perfect sense. God is love and we have fellowship with him to the extent that we love one another. that's who God is and we know God, we have fellowship with him to the extent that we love one another. Now here's the interesting verse first John chapter 4 verse 13 by this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So in the previous verses it was explained that God abides in us through our love for one another, but now, That abiding is said to be caused by the Spirit that God has given us. Augustine, in his commentary, says, So it is the Spirit which he has given us that makes us abide in God and him in us, but this is precisely what love does. So the Spirit makes us abide in God and him in us, but then just before that, John said, that's what love does. Thus, according to to Augustine, he would say the Spirit is synonymous with love and love with the Spirit. And I think he finds some further confirmation a few verses later. First John 4, 16. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love and no one abides. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So, the previous verses explain that we abide in God because the Spirit that he has given us and here we're told that when we abide in love, we abide in God. It follows, therefore, that the Spirit abiding in us and love abiding in us are the same thing. And so here's where Augustine, he, he, he makes this claim. He, it, there's a lot more to it. This is the most concrete passage. He says, the Spirit simply is love, and love simply is the Spirit. If love is what causes us to abide in God, If the Spirit is what causes us to abide in God, these two aren't different things, but they're just one and the same. So let's just hold that in mind. Now, um, these two names are suggestive about the Spirit's identity. And the the picture that's painted to us, if we think of the Spirit as gift and love, is one of participation and mutuality. There's a gift that's given to us that establishes communion, but this gift is love. Think of Romans 5.5. Um, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, right? Uh, or, or I might be mangling that a little bit. But So, when we consider the Spirit this way, I think um, we're compelled to think of His distinctness in terms of a self-involving love that creates communion. The Holy Spirit is love whom the Father and the Son share with us as their gift that we might have fellowship with them. So, Augustine finally concludes his argument. Um, He'll say, So, the love which is from God and is God is distinctly the Holy Spirit. Through him, the love of God is poured out into our hearts, and through it, the whole triad dwells in us. So, if we take um, love and gifts and, 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 and we admit those as right, we can take the final step. And so what Augustine wants to say is not only does the Holy Spirit create communion between God and the believer, but that the Spirit is the communion between the Father and the Son. So Augustine sees these deep patterns, the Holy Spirit being given and received and possessed, the Holy Spirit very, very closely being associated with love, and then he says, Maybe, maybe that's who he is in the Godhead. That he just is the Father's love for the Son and the, love, the Son's love for the Father. That the Spirit just is their mutual gifts to one another. And I do think there is something to that when you consider go back to the baptism story. As the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the Father's voice of my beloved Son is spoken. Right in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, you think of other passages where it says, "No one knows the Father except the Son; no one knows the Son except for the Father." And then in Luke, saying, "But he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit," he says that in the Holy Spirit, or Second Corinthians or First Corinthians two, where um, it, the the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, and I you can't say it and and, and just say this is true. This is it. Um, or, or let me add another passage, 2 Corinthians 13, um, that the, the, the grace of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God. Um, Ephesians 2, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, so on and so forth. I think there are certain patterns in Scripture that would lead us that way, and um, I think it does illumine who the Spirit is. So Augustine, I'm going to end with this, guys. Um, Augustine says, the son proceeds from the father as begotten, and so he says, "Well, maybe the spirit proceeds from the father as gift, something given, right? Uh, uh, begotten and gift, and he's the he's the one in between the father and the son." <laughs> so, any questions? Uh, anything you guys like to add to that? Sorry, I know we just kind of went off, and I, I was running out on time there. Yes. But still, even you know, if the Holy Spirit is the love of God. hmm Yes, and that's something, if we had more time, I would go into those arguments where, um, and I think they're pretty convincing why uh, it, it, it's, imp- you would also think of the Spirit as a person, because He gives His gifts um, to us, the Spirit, the, the 1 Corinthians 12 says, um, but He distributes them to whom He wills, right? So there's this personal agency that's involved there. And anyway, there's a pretty robust argument for Referring to him as love and gift, but also maintaining that personhood as well. Mike? Uh, so, according to the role of the Holy Spirit, He's also a teacher. He helps us to understand, change our mind, and remind us. Yes. Right, right. And, and that's the trouble, right? Is, is, and that's what I found with the trouble with calling him love and gift is like, okay, there are other ways the scriptures do refer to the Holy Spirit. So why are we privileging these ones above the others, right? Um, but there is a certain move we have to make and say, now, everything that the Holy Spirit does for us doesn't necessarily apply to him in eternity, So how do you distinguish those ones? So you could say teacher, of course he's not the teacher, but he shares that revelation and that knowledge with us. So is there some way that that coincides? Um, And I think there is something with love and knowledge that you might be able to connect those two notions. But yeah, so I I agree with what you're saying though, Mike, definitely. Any other questions about the Holy Spirit? Not just what we concluded there, but the Holy Spirit's identity? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's done a pretty extensive job of trying to figure out who the Holy Spirit is. Right. As an estimate, there's a pretty good idea of what the Holy Spirit does. Does anyone take on the idea of how the Holy actually starts with Yeah, and actually one of, the, one of the books that I came across, um uh T.F. Torrance, um he, he, it, was, it wasn't it was useful for the class, so I kind of skimmed through it. But he has a whole long chapter about that subjective side of revelation. Um, because clearly, like you said, the Holy Spirit, no one can proclaim Christ as Lord without him. Um, so, Mike, I can maybe photocopy that. But uh, off the top of my head, I don't know anything that tries to articulate the how part of it. Um, and I know they're in there, but I'm not familiar with them. Anything else any other questions? Well, I'm not going gonna... to. Yes. No one can proclaim the name of the Lord without the holy spirit. Yes. Yeah, so that would be uh Romans 10. Um, where where basically where Paul's talking about um, no one no one can confess Christ as Lord uh, apart from the spirit. Maybe I'm conflating two passages. There's one in Romans ten, and there's another one in First Corinthians that basically are saying that very same thing: that apart from the Spirit, uh, there isn't any Christ remains hidden from someone. Yeah, so he's the illuminator, right? He's the one who brings that uh, that that um, that revelation to light. Okay, so spirithood, and uh, here's what we'll do then: is we'll um, uh, we'll wrap up next week. Talking about the Holy Spirit's—I mean, uh, it's talking about the Trinity's operation within creation, within time and space, for our salvation. And we'll close with that, and yeah, we'll call it quits. You guys will be Trinitarian experts. <laughs> but let's go. Let's go ahead and <laughs> yeah, he's still, still the uncle, <laughs> Father. We uh, are grateful for this time, and um, you know, Lord, there is a certain fearfulness about talking about the spirit uh, a mystery that is that is awesome I, I love it and it's uh exciting and but we know that the spirit is and that the spirit is you divine um and we thank you for all that you do for us the holy spirit to open our eyes to help us see to ignite our faith to ignite our love to be the gift to us and um We're just grateful, and we love you, and we worship you along with the Father and the Son, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.